Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Shares for beginners. Sometimes negative headlines are information. You know, we, we do go through periods where the economy is turning down and there's going to be a period of um, poor returns in equity markets, period of rising unemployment. So sometimes bad news is bad news. But often, even in periods of good economic times, it's the bad news or the threatening news that is going to tend to dominate. So you need to have a bit of a filter. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. The economy takes up oodles of hours in the media. The mere mention of some economic terms can send shivers down the spines of investors. Today, I'm welcoming a living, breathing, real-life economist to talk about some of the terms that we should be aware of and hopefully to be inoculated against economic fear porn. Hello, David. Hello, Phil. Good to be with you. David Bassanese is the chief economist with ETF provider BetaShares. He's an ex-federal treasury escapee and spent time sipping espressos at the Paris-based OECD. So these are terms that we hear a lot about. What is what is the Federal Treasury and what is the OECD? Well, the Federal Treasury, it's a government department of the federal government uh, and it's really responsible for economic policy, like deciding, you know, where best to spend uh, government money, monitoring the economy, judging how, how strong the economy is going, what, does it need any extra support from the government? So that's really the, the, the Treasury. Now, and the OECD... Uh, a similar sort of economic think tank, but it has a more international focus. So it's, yeah, as you, it's Paris-based uh, and it's really a club of rich countries. So all the you know, developed countries around the world contribute money to the OECD and, uh, and that budget then um, funds many economists who work there and, and work on collective problems like working on you know, what's the best way to spend money in the healthcare sector, what's the best way to regulate the financial sector. So it's a, a collective effort in, in coming up with, um, you know, good policy that could be applied across many countries. 
Look, I just want to start off with talking about the economy as it's portrayed by the media. Do you think that the word, the term fear porn is valid in this case? There's a lot of times where journalists seem to have these glaring headlines about economic news and they seem to be designed to create fear. Is that your impression of the way things work? Look, that is uh, the nature of the media, unfortunately. I mean, I, again, I spent a decade working at the Financial Review uh, and I had a column in the market section and I often joke that you know, many of my columns were about downplaying, you know, what you're reading on the front page of the paper. So the front page is, uh, you know, very alarmist. Look, but, you know, when you think about it, it comes big down to the human psychology, right? We're more, we pay more attention to things that are likely to threaten us than things that are likely to, you know, benefit us. You know, it's that sort of uh, fear and flight. I don't want to get too deep about it, but basically one of the terms in the media is if it bleeds, it leads, you know, it's a bad news uh, sells more than good news. And so it's often, you know, alarmist bad news or threatening news is what works its way to the front page. So, and in, in the area of like economics, as, as a result, you know, you will see, you know, a, a, I guess a skew toward the more threatening uh, aspects of the economic outlook. Yes, it all comes back down, unfortunately, to um, the fight for eyeballs, the fight for attention, and it tends to skew uh, the way in which you know, economic and financial news is reported. Do you think it has an effect on investor psychology as well, especially for newer investors who aren't used to, to this? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's you know why we see so much volatility in the stock market. I mean, um, if you invest in the share market and you look at a long-term chart, you know, over the long run, shares go up. But And in fact, the blips that you see on a on a year to year basis here and there from a wider you know 10 20 year perspective look like you know very small uh, blips along the way but living through those blips can be quite disconcerting i, I remember I, I invested some money for my mother in shares a few years ago and um she became fixated on watching you know the the financial news and and just couldn't take the volatility <laughs> So, uh, but that's just a small example. But it, yeah, so it, it, it can affect, um, and as, as a result, you know, equities, generally speaking, in, a, in an economic downturn, you know, there's excessive selling, you know, stocks get very cheap when things turn bad. Uh, and similarly, in the good times, when uh, greed overcomes fear, you know, can, stocks can tend to get very expensive. So we do go from cycles of, um, you know, over exuberance to uh, excessive pessimism. Do you find as an economist that people expect you to have some kind of crystal ball? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is part of the job. I mean, we, economists do, I guess, tend to fall back on explaining what's going on, like, uh, which is kind of easier, right? You can explain, oh, this has happened uh, and this is why. But look, if you could forecast the economy and forecast financial markets um, well, I mean, you could stand to make a lot of money, right? And businesses would make good decisions. Uh, investors in the market would, would obviously make a lot more money. So, there is that incentive for, you know, economists, I guess, were hired to try to predict the future, try to anticipate where interest rates and the economy were going, simply because if you could, you could make a lot of money. But it is a very hard thing to do. But, you know, I guess it's part of our job, particularly someone like myself that does work in financial markets. You know, you're expected to have a view on on interest rates in the share market. Uh, even if you know that it's uh, highly conditional on a, on a lot of uh, moving parts and, you um, and things you know, can change pretty quickly. I like that. They're highly conditional on a lot of moving parts. I mean, there's, there's no other way that you can describe the economy. <laughs> well, there? there's, an, there's a scientific word for it, like a chaotic system, right? So forecasting a chaotic system is, you know, very, you know, almost impossible. But um, look, 
you know, good economists can get things better than I don't want to downplay, you know, that in forecasting is completely useless. I mean, at the moment, for example, I have a particular view about where the share market is likely to go, where the currency is likely to go. But I'm also very watchful of the things that could change that would, you know, change my views. But, you know, it's often useful to have at least a map as, in terms of where you think things are going, but then be very watchful in, in terms of what could upset that view. I'm actually tempted to ask you now what the what your view is on the direction of the share market. I'm sure listeners are going to go, well, what is it? What is it? What is it? But I don't really want to go down that path. No worries. <laughs> I really don't. I just want to talk about what I'm hoping to do today is to explain some economic terms and some economic institutions so that uh, listeners have a better understanding of what they are. So I wanted to start off with a central bank. What is a central bank? Yeah, well, a central bank is, um, I guess it's the guardian of the financial system, really, the monetary system. So a central bank these days is really, basically, the the main thing it can control effectively is the level of interest rates in the economy. Um, And it can do that through uh, tightening the ability of banks um, to lend. Without getting into the technical ways in which it does it, it can effectively set short-term interest rates in the market, which then obviously affect the cost of borrowing and lending, which in turn affects the you know the strength of the economy. And so they vary interest rates over time to keep the economy on an even keel. So if the economy is getting overly hot, inflation's breaking out, then they can raise interest rates, which slows credit demand, tends to slow the economy and, and brings... Um, you know, those pressures are back down again. Similarly, if we get a big negative shock, uh, as we saw during COVID, where, you know, demand was very weak, they can um, lower interest rates and, and try to encourage um, spending and credit. So at heart, they're sort of like, um, you know, they regulate the speed at which the economy grows to keep inflation in check and keep employment as, you know, as uh, unemployment as low as possible without, without inflation uh, getting out of hand, and they do that through um, varying the level of interest rates, essentially. And our central bank is known as the Reserve Bank, and in the US it's the Federal Reserve, is that That's right? That's right. And Europe has its own central bank covering a whole bunch of countries? Uh, yeah, and they all have their funny, uh, you know, so the East, uh, European Central Bank, is, so the ECB, and then in New Zealand they've got the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, so that's called the RBNZ, and then in um In England, they've got the Bank of England, and it's the BOE. So uh, everyone's got their sort of um, you know shorthand abbreviations. But um, so every every country basically has a central bank that uh, do essentially what the Reserve Bank tries to do here in Australia. And so it's just adjusting interest rates. So when times are bad and uh, the economy is falling, they want to reduce interest rates because that has an effect on trying to stimulate the economy, and then vice versa. Is that how it works? Basically, yeah, it's like think about interest rates as a dial almost. Where you, if you need to, um, you know, encourage growth in the economy because it's weak, you can uh, lower the dial, lower interest rates, and and vice versa. So they can dial interest rates up or down. Now they can do a few other things as well. I mean, what we've seen recently, um, just a few years ago, they actually introduced what's called macroprudential controls, where the RBA, uh, along with APRA, the the regulator of the banks, um. Rather than they wanted to slow credit demand, uh, they thought the housing sector, particularly in Sydney, was getting too hot. Um, so rather than raise interest rates, which would have affected everybody, they basically told the banks to reduce their lending to investors uh, and, in fact, and increase the interest rate uh, on mortgages for investors. So that was a very targeted uh, policy. It's actually a relatively new innovation in, in the way you know central banks operate. So 
that's another tool. So they yeah they change interest rates, but in these days they can also direct banks to um, you know either increase or decrease their lending to certain areas, or particularly decrease their lending in certain areas if they think it's it's getting out of hand. A little while ago, you just mentioned monetary policy. So what is, we hear the terms fiscal policy and monetary policy. What's your overview of those terms? Monetary policy is the policy of deciding, you know, should interest rates go up or down in terms of, you know, helping the economy or, you know, regulating or or telling uh, banks, you know, whether they should be lending as much to certain sectors. So that's monetary, essentially deciding what level of interest rates and, and credit conditions are best given where the economy is at the moment. Fiscal policy is is run by the federal government uh, and that's really deciding government spending and taxation. So how much any given year the government's got a whole bunch of different spending commitments. You're paying pensions, paying unemployment benefits, uh, giving money to the states and then they try to finance that through taxation, you know, their personal tax, company tax. And so fiscal policy is deciding a, you know, where, where to be spending that money and B, what the net balance between spending and taxation should be. So, for example, if you're spending a lot of money, uh, if you decide the economy needs some stimulus, for example, through fiscal policy, you might decide to, um, you know, ramp up spending, give more money to states to fund uh, infrastructure projects, for example. That's a, a fiscal stimulus. And then you might decide later, well, because that's increased the budget deficit, we've got to increase taxes Otherwise, it might have too much stimulus imposed in the economy. So that's really the way fiscal policy works. It's deciding the level of government spending and where government should spend that money and also the level of taxation and, and how that tax revenue should be should be raised. So presumably they can interact with each other, these kind of policy settings, sometimes obviously hopefully in tandem, but otherwise maybe at odds with each other. How do you see that? Yeah, look, again, they're run by two separate groups. So the federal government effectively runs fiscal policy and the Reserve Bank, which is independent of the government, which is very important, it, uh, it basically the RBA can decide what it wants to do with no pressure from the government. Effective, well, effectively no pressure from the government. So there's no reason they necessarily have to run together. Ideally, it would be nice if they did. And obviously, government officials like Treasury officials where I used to work and, and the, the Treasurer would meet with Reserve Bank officials, RBA Governor Phil Lowe, quite regularly. So they'd compare notes on the economy uh, and often they would work together. So during the COVID crisis, for example, in 2020, you had uh, monetary policy eased quite a lot. So interest rates were cut aggressively uh, and the government did a big fiscal stimulus package. So both arms of policy were working to, to stimulate the economy. Sometimes they can work in opposite directions. So governments, for various reasons, may decide they want to spend a lot of money at a time where the economy is running already too hot. Uh, and so that that would then put pressure on the Reserve Bank to, to raise interest rates to sort of slow the economy. So you've got two arms of policy moving in opposite directions. Um, so that's how it works. Ideally, they kind of work together, but often, but there's no reason they necessarily would because they are run by two separate groups. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I think you're kind of hinting there that um, what these policy settings are aimed to deal with, in a way, is inflation. How does Treasury and the, and the central bank look at inflation? So inflation is like a, uh, the rate of increase in prices on an on a ongoing basis. So you know, for every year, infl- uh, prices are going up by 5%. You'd say that inflation is running at 5%. Now, a little bit of inflation is okay. So something like around about 2% or the RBA's target is 2.5%. So a little bit of inflation in the economy is, 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 is good. It's sort of like oil for the machine, if you like. But if it gets too high, and particularly if it gets high and volatile, uh, that creates a lot of uncertainty for businesses. It's hard to plan, you know, when you don't know, you know, what the level of prices are going to be over the next uh, next year or so. So it tends to hurt business investment, and it also hurts consumers because you know their real incomes. You know, after inflation, their incomes can can fluctuate. So. History, you know, shows us that high and volatile inflation uh, hurts economic growth, uh, and so governments and central banks do aim to keep inflation uh, low and stable. That's the ideal. You want a little bit of inflation, but not too much. And of course, if the brakes go on too hard, then the economy can go into a recession. Um, and maybe we should talk about that in the context. At the moment, there seems to be in the US a debate about whether they're in a recession or not, and the difference between a technical recession and one that might be a bit more nuanced. Yeah, so in the US, I mean, generally speaking around the world, um, a technical recession is when uh, economic growth, as, as measured, you know, GDP growth, is negative for two quarters in a row. So generally around the world, we measure the, the level of output in the economy. It's gross domestic product, GDP, uh, and we measure it on a quarterly basis. And so when you get two negative uh, numbers in a row, it, it's seen as a technical recession. Now, in the US, it's a little bit different. They have a, a group, it's quite unusual for the United States, there's actually a group of economists uh, they're a part of a, a group called the National Bureau of Economic Research, and uh, they actually pore over the economic statistics and decide amongst themselves whether they think the economy's gone into recession or not. And so it's not just about GDP, it's about the, the breadth of, of the weakness in things like consumer spending, industrial production, employment growth. Um, and if they feel that there's enough breadth of weakness and it's been going on for a long enough time, then they say, you know what, we think the economy's gone into recession. Uh, and then they proclaim when they think the economy's come out of recession. Now, the only issue with that group is they don't tend to tell us that until six months up to a year after the fact. So it's really just from an historical uh, perspective, but that's the way it works in the United States. So when, when we talk about recessions in the US and uh, there's a, you know, a whole history of the periods in which it's been in and out of recession, it comes back to this group, the NBER, which have been around for a while, that have basically proclaimed when they think the economy has gone in and, and come out of recession. What is the CPI and why do we hear so much about it? Yeah, so the CPI is the Consumer Price Index. It's basically a measure of the prices of a whole bunch of goods and services across the economy. So it's a way of keeping track of inflation, general level of prices in the economy. So uh, the Bureau of Statistics, again, it's similar in countries all around the world. So our Bureau of Statistics actually goes out and measures the prices of a whole bunch of things, you know, the price of bread, the price of milk, uh, the price of uh, rents for homes, the price of holidays, 
um, a whole collection of goods and services and it sums it up into an index and then every quarter we get a an estimate of what the CPI has done that in that quarter. So you know, it's gone up 1%. It means on average across all of the goods and services that have been monitored by the Bureau of Statistics, prices have gone up by about 1%. Now, the weights on those goods and services are broadly in line with our household budgets. So again, there's a lot of debate of what the weights on different things should be. But they again, they survey households and work out, you know, what percent of a household budget typically is spent on bread, is spent on overseas holidays, and, and those weights are what are then used to calculate the overall CPI. And presumably that's what inflation is based on, this number. Yeah, so again, when we talk about inflation, you know, picking up, we mean that the CPI, you know, the rate of increase in the CPI uh, has accelerated, like it started to, um, you know, pick up. So we talk about like annual inflation is up, let's say it's at 6%. It means that the average price of the basket of goods and services that the the ABS uh, monitor has gone up 6% over the past uh, uh, 12 months. And what's GDP? So GDP is gross domestic product, and that's a measure of economic activity in the economy. So effectively, again, there's a lot of um, assumptions and work that goes into calculating, but it's effectively trying to calculate the amount of goods and services that are produced in the economy in in a given quarter, a given three-month period. So when you hear the economic growth was um, you know, 2% in the last quarter, it means that GDP, the, the the estimate of the goods and services produced in the economy, uh, grew by 2% uh, over, over that period. So in your opinion, what are important economic concepts for investors to understand? Yeah, I mean, where do we begin? So I, there's a lot of things to think about. I mean, the, the pace of interest rates obviously are a big driver of uh, so much in financial markets. They affect the level of economic growth, which in turn affects the level of corporate earnings. Uh, which in turn affects the share market. The other effect is uh, the level of interest rates affects the the valuation of the share market. So if interest rates are very high, if you can get a good return by putting your money in the bank or buying bonds, then to compete, the shares have to sell at a a cheaper level. And so higher interest rates tend to put downward pressure on uh, equity valuation. So interest rates are very good. I mean, just the general uh, sense of is the economy you know, growing well, or is it slowing down? Is there a risk of a recession? The other thing is, I think, um, just having a sense that different investments can trade either very expensively or at very cheap levels, and 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 markets tend to move in cycles, and we tend to swing from you know periods of greed where things are very expensive, and and unfortunately, a lot of retail investors tend to buy at, at precisely the wrong moments where everyone's very excited about the share market, for example, and it's been going up for a number of years. Everyone starts to notice and they all jump in, uh, but they tend to be jumping in right at the time when the market is you know, pretty hot and pretty expensive. And similarly, when the, the market turns down, uh, and there's a lot of you know, negativity out there and um, the economy could be in recession. Shares have been going down for a while. Nobody wants to touch the share market. And that's actually often when it's a good time to buy because shares are then cheap. But um, so that, that's just, just, just a few things, you know, having a sense for how the economy is moving. Uh, what interest rates are doing, having a sense that uh, uh, markets do move in cycles and your likely returns from any investment depend on, importantly, you know, what, what price you're paying for it. If you buy assets at a very expensive level, then your likely return over the next few years is, is going to be poor and vice versa. 
This is a question without notice. Yep. <laughs> what does an economist do at an ETF provider? Well, again, we provide at the first level just basic economic information, like it's a service to our clients, uh, I, uh, retail investors in, in our funds, uh, also financial planners. Uh, so a big part of our business is uh, promoting the use of the ETFs with financial planners who in turn you know, would then use them in their recommendations with clients. So firstly, it's a service to provide information on what's going on in the economy. Uh, secondly, to the extent you want to be you know, active, um, the thing about ETFs, you, you can be as simple or as complicated as you want. If you just want a, a simple ETF that tracks the share market, you can just buy that, set and forget, and you don't have to look at the markets again. But if you want to like play the markets a little bit, decide I want to have some European exposure, I like emerging markets, I like technology, I like resources, then you know what I also what economists like myself do is is just give information in terms of you know what's likely to be doing well in our opinion you know obviously th- as we were saying before these are just um, opinions and um, and forecasts in a way but give a sense for you know over the next six months to a year or so these areas of the markets may well do better than other areas. So that, that's the sort of information that um, I aim to provide. And is there any words of comfort that uh, you can give investors about um, fear porn and the, those lurid economic headlines that we, we see? Oh, end of the day, I mean, you know, share markets over time trend up, I mean, because the economy is trending up. So over time, being invested in the market, you're going to do well. I mean, you've got to basically have an investment you know, balance of investments. So shares are, are great over the long term, but they can be volatile. Now, if they're too volatile and, you know, they give you, you know, keep you up at night, then you can have a more blended portfolio by having, um, for example, bonds, uh, which we also offer through an ETF. Bonds are a different type of investment, but they're generally less volatile. And so, again, you see that in superannuation, people, uh, but generally a diversified portfolio, you'll have a blend of equities and cash and bonds, so that the overall volatility of your portfolio is in line with your risk tolerance. So it's not too volatile that it's going to upset you, but it, it'll still offer you a, a long run uh, return. Sometimes negative headlines are information. You know, we, we do go through periods where the economy is turning down and there's going to be a period of um, poor returns in equity markets, period of rising unemployment. So sometimes bad news is bad news. But often, even in periods of good economic times, it's the bad news or the threatening news that is going to tend to dominate. So you need to have a bit of a filter. <laughs> David Bassanese, thank you very much for joining me today. Lovely to be with you. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop 
dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 